Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner. I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Adrian Murray, a writer, director, and occasional actor whose first film, Withdrawn, explored the desperation of a young man who launches a credit card scam to get himself out of a financial hole. His second feature, Retrograde, stars Molly Reisman as a young woman who falls down a rabbit hole of anxiety and self-destructive behavior after she gets a simple traffic ticket. It premiered at the 2022 Canadian Film Festival, and it opens in theaters across Canada this Friday, May 19th. It's very good, and you should check it out. Adrian picked Dazed and Confused, Richard Linklater's 1993 comedy about some teenagers in Austin, Texas on the last day of school in 1976. Filled with youthful energy, terrible fashion choices, and what we now recognize as Linklater's signature love of casual conversation, it boasts one of the best casts of its decade, though it would take a few years for anyone to realize it. And yeah, it's a little weird to revisit it 30 years later. We got older, but the actors stayed the same. This is someone else's movie. So Dazed and Confused, I have a long relationship with, at first when it started showing up in my life, like at people's, um, you know, high school birthday parties, they would throw it on as like a, a real fun, cool movie. And I didn't get it then. I didn't like it. And it kept on being thrown on uh, while I was, you know, going to university and stuff. And at that point, you really should like Linklater as a, as a film student in university. But I still just couldn't connect with, uh, with Dazed and Confused. I thought it was maybe... Uh, an arrogant movie, an irritating movie, sort of a, <laughs> I don't know, like it was a, it was a try hard of a movie in my mind then. Um, and then, and then something just slowly started changing. I watched it, you know, this is a movie, no matter if you like it or not, you're going to see it a bunch of times in your life, I found. <laughs> and uh, just a few years ago, I rewatched it again and I just really fell in love with it. I found it was a much darker much more nuanced um subtle and engaging movie uh you know than i had originally thought i thought it was i don't know almost like a no disrespect to the american pie franchise but i thought it was like the american pie of art house films or something <laughs> um, and actually <laughs> and i actually do think it might be that but now i really love that about it um you know, it's it's this movie that that I watch it and I feel like it's balancing this really violent darkness, um, like pervasive darkness <laughs> and, and violence. Um, but then there's the optimism of being a teenager and just going to a party and having the whole world ahead of you. Um, so it's it's you know this movie of two extremes that I I now just love rewatching it to explore both ends of this. And I find that I can, now I find each time I watch it, I can find something new to latch onto and really dig into. And um, yeah. And, and I, I just, I love, I love that, uh, you know, you can have this changing relationship with films where you can hate them one time and love them later or love them at one time. And then, you know, just totally miss, feel like uh, they've got nothing going for them later on in life. So. Well, the film occupies such an odd place I think everywhere because I was I was already in my no I was in my twenties when I saw it because I saw it at TIFF in nineteen ninety three I guess it was the Midnight Madness opener if I remember correctly oh wow um, 
but I saw it at a press screening the day before, like 10 o'clock in the morning. And it had the bleary, drifting experience at 10 o'clock in the morning, waiting for the Midnight Madness thing, waiting for whatever it was that was going to be wild because 92's Midnight Madness was like Peter Jackson and uh, Man Bites Dog and Nightwild. It was a phenomenal year of extremes. And this is the this was the softer, gentler version. And I could see it absolutely playing with a with a bunch of people who just maybe smoked up outside the theater before going in, which is definitely the way it's intended to be seen. But at 10 o'clock in the morning, it was just this lazy easing into these lives and it worked. It worked great. But I also felt slightly underwhelmed um, just because the whole point of the movie is that this isn't it, right? Like this isn't, this is the night that they'll look back and remember, but the whole point of Linklater's film, as with Waking Life, I think in a, in a different way is just like, we don't fully appreciate the things that are happening to us when they're happening. We just stumble through them. And then if you get out the other side and you still have all your fingers and toes, you know, like you count yourself lucky. And then 20 years later, it's like, it's his American graffiti. But with American Graffiti, Absolutely. the war is coming, right? Like there is I, that. I think that's why he was so clever about setting it when he said it, because in 1976, the war's over, and all they have is nothing. Like this is a generation with without purpose yet, and some of them are going to get consumed by the Reagan Revolution. Like, absolutely, Ben Affleck's going to go to Congress. Um, but it's all <laughs> about not being who you are yet, and having yeah. no guideposts and. That's what I love about it now is watching Pink not fit in or fit in with everyone, depending on the situation. Like he doesn't have a personality yet. And and I'm sure that that wasn't the intention when Linklater wrote it, that it's a story about somebody trying to figure out what he's going to be. But that's the spine of it that forms. And maybe it's just in casting Jason London because he has a twin brother and you know, I'm, I'd seen him in some other stuff, I think, or I'd seen the brother. I'd seen one of them before anyway. And it was this weird moment of like, oh, this this guy's not really anything. And I don't mean that as an insult. It's just like he's a complete blank slate. And then watching that character become the center of the story and passing through everybody and reacting to everything, it was this perfect mirror to Slacker, which was Linklater's debut where there is no central character, like we are the central character. We're just going from person to person listening to monologues. And that's exactly the same thing here, except that it's a period piece and it's an ensemble piece. And everybody, there are no non-actors. Everybody in it is a stone pro already. It's it's fascinating in retrospect, but in the moment, it's just kind of there, which is, I think, why it ended up being this perennial, because you could put it on and it would just happen and you don't really need to plug all the way in. But then on second and third and fourth viewings, it's just like, this sounds so dumb. It's a grower, not a shower. <laughs> Absolutely, it is. I mean, and that fits with my comparison to American platforms, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, weirdly enough, yes. <laughs> but I, I totally agree. And, um, you know, what you said about it, you know, it's just things almost happening to this character. I think that's, that does feel like that's very relatable for life you know we're oh, yeah. we're it it isn't what you normally expect from a movie um to just have sort of a totally passive reactive character like that but that is more or less what our lives are you know we are surrounded by this like insurmountable mundanity that we're just sort of reacting to um and i think this the film really captures that well and uh the other thing you know watching it again and again and again and again at the beginning i felt like it wasn't leading anywhere but now i'm like oh 
I actually kind of feel like it's very, it very clearly has a gravity um, that everything's being pulled towards. Um, you know, everything's going towards this party and everything's going towards um, Pink's decision to sign the, uh, that form about not doing drugs so he can stay on oh, the football team. The pledge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so now I watch it and I'm kind of in awe of how subtly those, that, that gravity works on everyone and every aspect of the film. Yeah. And, and yeah, again, relatable, you know, we feel, I, I relate to not feeling like uh, I have a ton of control in my life. And then, you know, I think most people in, Pink's situation would probably just sign the letter like everyone else encouraging him to do. Um, but then it's so, uh, so triumphant that he doesn't, you know, that he, like you said, there's no, uh, in the context of the film, there's no like big war or big cultural moment, you know, in the, that, that people are are trying to fight for, fight against, you know, that at least is it's, it's not in the film at that point. Um, and so it's really exciting to see someone actually fight against this more subtle, I don't know, authoritarian uh, uh, figure. Yeah. I mean, I think of all the of all the kids that we meet, Pink is probably the one who watched a few Watergate hearings. And, <laughs> you know, he's he's mistrustful of authority, like every high school kid is. Mm-hmm. But he's probably the only one on the football team who would take it to that level. Like he's he's. He's a he's a cipher in that he doesn't like he's not a jock as we have come to understand them. Like there's no we see plenty of stereotypes in the film, but Pink's not one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, like we have Wooderson for contrast, who is just this amazing breakout role for for McConaughey, of course. Like who people now I I love talking to people who didn't see the film until recently um and think it's a matthew mcconaughey vehicle because he's the clip like he's the gif he's the i get older they stay the same age that's him that's what everybody remembers about the movie but he's barely there he's great like Linklater knows exactly how to deploy him but it's not his story like it can't be he doesn't go to school anymore he's he's an outsider and pink is the one who sees him um as a person instead of a, a cartoon like he he doesn't initially but then in the end they're breaking up fights together like they're recognizing each other's decency yeah. and and pink is open and of course the name is just amazing randall pink floyd because unimaginative teenagers would call him pink because his last name is floyd it's not because he likes the music it's not like it's great it it, it is a non sequitur for him mm-hmm. but he's our guide because he's got this awakening conscience of some sort that even he doesn't understand. He just knows he doesn't like to sign things that people tell him to sign. I don't think he could even, I mean, he tries to articulate it over and over again in the film. Yeah. Well, when you're a teenager, you, I I think there's a common feeling is that, you know, something might be wrong, but you have very little idea of what it is, let alone how to articulate it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's Linklater's genius is the, the, the unexpressed stuff. I mean, that's what the before movies are all about. Um, when he does something big and, and declarative, like school of rock, it turns into a cartoon because it's all exposition and declarative. And, you know, like, how do we fix this problem? Well, we do this and we do this. And then we sing a song and his rambling movies, the ones that are unstructured or that have a hidden structure, like, like the before movies or um, everybody wants some, which is kind of the spiritual successor to this. Mm-hmm. They're the ones where I think we see his heart. 
like his real interest is just hanging out and talking to people um, and finding out where they're going to take the conversation. And this is him putting us in the position of letting him steer, but he's not going to be really fussy about it. Um, like it's, it's the same. It is. I keep coming back to American graffiti because it's the obvious model. It's just kids in cars getting into trouble. Yeah. But um, in this case, they're all united by this last day of school foolishness where they're trying to do something like they're, they're chasing a legend that they're going to write for themselves anyway. And that won't actually happen because they're high school kids in Texas in 1970. Like there's not going to be an adventure. Um, they don't even have the language for it yet. Star Wars is still a year away, right? Like the, the world hasn't changed around them exactly, but the ramble is the, is the point and, and watching people reveal themselves in moments and, and just, bond or not bond or realize that they're probably never going to see each other again and be fine with it. Like the melancholy that hits in the last two seconds is it's, it's inevitable, but it's so weirdly perfect that you spend enough time with these kids that you forget how meaningful this is going to be. And like, he's tricking us into that. There's, there are versions of this movie and I've seen them that are heavy with portent, mm -hmm. you know, where every act break is somebody opening a, a beer bottle and saying, you know, this is probably the last time I ever do this with you. And they're they're not as good. They're they're chasing they're chasing the thing that this movie achieves effortlessly, which is just to have a personality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and like you said, it's about not knowing what's you know. There's a lot of not knowing what's uh, passing you by as it's happening, and mm -hmm. not knowing that's going to be the last time you see that high school friend or whatever. Um, yeah, I. The I also the, the the backdrop of this film. Um, so I want to talk about like the extremes of, of the happiness in this film and the darkness because there is such uh, joyful moments in this film. Oh yeah, please. Um, youthful glee, uh, like when the uh, when the kids you know are able to dump the paint bucket on. Uh, I forget the character's name, <laughs> but when they finally you know get their comeuppance. Um, and there's just the joy of, you know, seeing friends, uh, have a good time together. There's the joy of seeing, you know, when the kids, uh, get a ride with pink in their car and they get to feel like the cool kids finally, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the joy of, I guess, a well-told coming of age story is, is just, you know, you've got sort of the, that real heartwarming stuff. Um, but then the backdrop, I, I, I find it's, it's this incredibly, and and cartoonishly at times, uh, violent world. You like you literally have these these uh, men chasing around kids with bats to beat them up. Um, when the kids try and you know get released from school early, their teacher uh, basically reveals he has PTSD from the Vietnam War. Yeah, uh, and you know even what the um, what the uh, the girls are going through like the hazing routine that they're going through is incredibly oh, like horrific and violent, but oh, done it's evil. It's evil yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And, um, and it's done with a smile and they're almost happy to go through it or, you know, it, I, I don't know if it's, you know, some characters are just excited to uh, like meet the violence they're going to have to deal with <laughs> in their <laughs> life or, <laughs> horrible way of putting it but yeah <laughs> but um 
and you know, I, I don't think it's it's like I, the world is a, a kind of cruel and violent place, but it's also not only that. And I think that this film is really great at showing those those extremes. Um, there's one shot in it. I forget when it happens, but it's just one of the cars driving away. And in the background, you've got uh, one of the older guys just wailing on a kid with a uh, with one of his bats. And, you know, we just have a pop song blaring and it's kind of a throwaway transition that could be played for laughs. But if you change the soundtrack, it's also like an incredibly bleak image. <laughs> Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on Shiny Things, my twice-weekly newsletter about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming project. Last week, I wrote about the quiet apocalypses of Deep Impact and Knock at the Cabin, and revisited Flashdance in Paramount's new 4K edition and discovered a fascinating cultural artifact. This week, it's our first anniversary. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io, or find a link at the Simcast Twitter account. Really, first anniversary. Come check it out. Well, that's it, right? Like when you when they look back, they're going to realize how bad it was, yeah, or or how dangerous things were. Hey, that guy threw a gun at you. Like the people get that's um, right. They get, people they get, get threatened, gone. like legitimately. Yeah. <laughs> there is life or death stuff, but that's again the, of course, it's Linklater's Boyhood, where they're we're always aware of the dangers that aren't happening, and I remember when that came out, people were annoyed that you know like that the the play the scene where they're playing with the bandsaw doesn't pay off and it's like the point is he knows not to do it and we're watching this this person evolve this soul this develop a a, a sense of responsibility and and consciousness and boyhood is m- way more explicit about that and um and days and confused is just sort of floating there nobody dies nobody gets hurt i mean the, the bat stuff is there'll be bruises (laughs) but it's the kind of thing you would dismiss as you know horseplay i guess is the word right like it's the kind of thing that everybody writes off and the and the the abuse of the future sorority sisters is similarly the kind of thing that everybody just sees as necessary and required to fit into society and and yeah linklater's always understood that Mm -hmm. the um the way that social mores are imposed on us and we figure it out there's entire stretches of the before films where they're talking about that very thing and how we grew up to reject the things that we reject and none of these kids knows any better and so it's a miracle that they all make it and some of them are really be carrying the trauma forever but in that moment right it's just a thing that happens yeah yeah um and they're just they're basically like play acting what they expect their futures to be, you know, like the girls are play acting, being a, like some sort of, you know, perverted form of like marriage, you yeah. know, yep. he's forced to go and declare her love for, uh, you know, someone who's a stranger to her, et cetera. And, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah. And then running from that or running away from the safe, trying to embrace it. There's a, I find this sequence where, the three kids go to their middle school dance to take their friend away from it. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're walking through and you have all the kids just slowly, you know, holding each other and dancing. Um, And it's adorable because, you know, the girls are all taller than the guys, like, you know, puberty has been wreaking havoc on these guys. And uh, 
but it's just like this, you know, slow, it's like, it's like you're walking through, um, like a, a nest of chrysalids, you know, yeah. but they're so eager to break free of it. And even when they leave the, the teachers, like once you leave, you can't come back and they all make fun of that. And it's, uh, yeah, yeah. It's just that, that fun when you're a child, you're, you're always trying to be one year older because that's when all the cool stuff happens. Right. Yeah. Not realizing kind of that, that, yeah. Comfort. Like they, I think they, they go in and they literally tear uh, his, you know, one of their friends away from, you know, making out with some girl that he has a crush on. And they think that their, their little journey about going and, you know, trying to get beer and uh, run away from people with baseball bats is going to be more fulfilling than that. <laughs> yeah. And then the kids who do understand that something bigger is at play, like Adam Goldberg's character, for example, they're miserable. They're not enjoying any of this. They already know they don't want to be there. Um, and I, I love the contrasts, too, between Pink's idiot friends who are really just out for a good time and don't have any depth. And deliberately, it's not what they're underwritten. They just don't want to do anything more than what they're already doing. They like their lives. But you see the kids here who are going to be the the next Woodersons, mm -hmm. right? You can tell who they are. And then there's this whole other subset of kids who cannot wait for this to be over and go to college because that's where you learn. That's where you grow. Like that's where the, I mean, that's where the better drugs are, which is clearly a thing in this community that the stuff they're using isn't what it, what they want it to be. Yeah. But he understands that too. Like Linklater even gets that in the scenes with the tiny little scenes with Affleck, who is never going to leave. I mean, he'll be a state senator. He won't be a senator senator. <laughs> yeah. But he's never going to be anything other than who he is. And it's not Affleck, it's Fred O'Donnell. I don't want to be mean. Affleck has actually turned out. Like, this film is an incredible Petri dish of talent. Very um, To look back and think, oh, this guy, there's an Oscar winner. There's an Oscar winner. There's an Oscar winner. There's Parker Posey, who should have three by now. And uh, it's it's remarkable how much raw talent is like Mila Jovovich is going to go off and lead an action franchise series that will make billions of dollars. Yeah. And somehow they're all in Austin, Texas to make this movie. Mm -hmm. And the stories of the, have, have you read the the book? Have you read the behind the scenes book? All right. All right. All right. The oral history. Uh, so a journalist, Melissa Mayers wrote it in 2020. Uh, there's an excerpt from it on Vulture, which I have here right in front of me because I want to get this quote, right. Um, but it is exactly what we were saying. The experience of making the movie was exactly what the experience of watching the movie is. It's Rory Cochran saying, nobody got hurt, thankfully. And <laughs> and Nikki Cat doubling down by saying, in hindsight, it's incredible. Nobody drove off a cliff or anything. We were pretty off the leash. They were all high. Some of them bought guns. Um, it's the wow. Cole Hauser and Nikki Cat tell a story about Rory discharging a firearm on the roof of a building because it wasn't deliberate. They, he had a gun in his hand and was trying to figure out how it, how it worked and it goes off. And that's not even in the movie because yeah. you wouldn't believe it if you saw it, right? Like if that was the, that would make the film too dramatic um, to have that moment. Instead, we just have a gun present the same way the bandsaw's there in Boyhood. And like Linklater knows that's all you need. And you'll think about it later. It's like, oh yeah, it is a good thing. Nothing bad happened there. But if it turns into a scene that is staged for dramatic effect, it's a movie. It's too dramatic. We wouldn't believe it this way. Even though it's fictional, it feels like you've just wandered into this thing. Yeah. And that, I think that's his greatest gift is to, to let us be genuine spectators um, and to think about what he's showing us and whether depiction really is endorsement. I don't think 
certainly I don't think it is, but there's a whole generation now that's going to say this is a movie about toxic masculinity and male and white privilege. And like, yes, it fucking is. That's the point. <laughs> but it doesn't mean it's for it. It's no. about understanding it and realizing it and doing better. Yeah. 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 And, and I mean, it, like on that topic, I, I, it to me really shows also how um, helpless, you know, these characters are in the face of, you know, toxic masculinity and this, this violence, because they don't have any other role models. You know, the, uh, the parents are the adults in their world are all damaged, cruel, and violent in, in to some degree, or absolutely um, completely. And the older boys are, you know, aping them. And the younger boys, you know, we know that they're, there's going to be a whole batch of them just growing up to to ape these guys because that's what happened. Um, and they've been taught nothing else. It's almost thrown, you know, the anything that's kind of uh, progressive in the film is almost thrown away as a joke, which I, I think is another thing that Linklater does well. And why he does um, people getting high really well, too, is I guess also because they were actually high, but because he... <laughs> He does it, you know, there's there's always the grain of truth what these characters, these high characters are talking about. Mm-hmm. Like they're, um, you know, talking about the power structures at play, um, you know, and, and then that leads into conspiracy theories, etc. But they're almost the closest ones to actually addressing what these guys are going through. But they're so out of their minds, they can't, you know, <laughs> it's so slippery. Um yeah, no one can ever articulate what the problem is in his movies, which uh, or they're hyper articulate like Jesse and Celine. Yeah, and I kind of love that about him. I, I've interviewed him a few times, and he has absolutely no problem drilling into like motifs and and themes and his point and the larger arguments that he's making with his with his body of work, really. Mm-hmm. But I love the way he writes inarticulate characters because casual conversation sounds like that. You yeah. know, people don't get heavy with each other or when they do, they're drunk or high and it's ridiculous. Yeah. And yeah. the bumbling, the, the the stumbling into each new situation and out of each new situation is so authentic. Like I wasn't a teenager in the seventies, but I know those kids, they're, they're, that feels so real. And his gift is to just get out of the way of the characters he's created. Like he's built this world and then he just lets it run. Like he pulls the string and lets it run and films it. And I know it's more complicated than that, but I really do think that's how he sees it. He's creating these, these moral incubators and and just letting the little Sims run around inside for our enjoyment. Totally. Yeah. Um, it feels like a very light touch on his part. Like there's almost nothing you know, I feel like you must feel like on this on those sets, like there's nothing that can be done wrong, really. Mm-hmm. Um, because he's just set up. Like, because everything rings so true, like I doubt anything was exactly how anyone imagined it to be. But I feel like he's just so he must be so um, present in the situation and, you know, not trying to force people to be, to 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 act in some way that that they're their personalities can just come out and uh, roam free in the world. And it's that roaming that makes it true. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really good way to put it. The film is just as 
um, the characters are unmoored. The film is unanchored, right? The film is adrift in them, but it knows where it, it ultimately knows it can pull out an oar and I'm ruining this metaphor. Uh, <laughs> no, I, <laughs> it knows where it's going. Like it knows where it's going to be in the end. He has the roadmap, but nobody else does. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And or we believe that no one else does. He can convince right, yeah. us of that. Well, and no, maybe no one needs to, you know, if the film, the film's going to make it to the party, you know, yeah. oh, <laughs> it's not like any character is going to somehow uh, go completely off track because the whole film's going there. It's almost like a road trip movie where you, you know, the structure can just be, you go away and then you're going to either get there or not, or, you know, anyway. Yeah. I, I'm trying to go deep in this metaphor too, and I'm kind of derailing it, but <laughs> I, I, I ruined it. I started off badly, um, <laughs> but it, but it comes away, but everything's all right, because that's the point. Like it is, it, it is okay to join, to step into this river for the 24 hours that it exists for, to watch this movie, to visit this world and then leave and think about your own experiences. And it, like, there's something uniquely American about the high school picture, even though they're made elsewhere in the world. Mm -hmm. I, and I think it's just because American television has conformed a, a sense of of what high school movies are supposed to be like, what high school narratives are. And it's perfect. They have beginnings, middles, and ends. There's clear um, divisions between the characters and freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. And we all are supposed to want the same things to, you know, make friends, to kiss somebody, to go to college. Like that's the, that's the arc of all of these. And by setting it on the last day of school and having those conversations already over, like they've all they've all either achieved or failed to achieve, and that's where we meet them, where they're either peaking in one way or another, or having failed to make the the experience they wanted, they're now miserable and cynical, or they're just like pink. They're wrestling with the future in a in a way he can't even articulate. Like this, this isn't going to be the only time I think he refuses to do something. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it makes me feel good about his chances. I'm kind of surprised he never did a sequel. It's probably just impossible with scheduling to get everybody back together. Yeah, I mean, if, yeah, it'd be interesting. I'd, I'd trust him to do it. <laughs> right? Like of anybody. Yeah. He's proven that he can do this. I mean, maybe for all we know, he's got a long, he's been working on one for 25 years anyway and just not told anybody. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I honestly felt betrayed when Boyd was announced. He's like, what do you mean you've been working on this? This is the most fascinating thing in the world. And you've never, you've managed to not tell anybody. I know that was, that was really shocking. I don't know how that, that wasn't just out and about in the news, but yeah, there he did it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. And you know, more secret projects, please. Cause um, I, I trust him. I trust him to do, I trust him to do the thing he wants to do. I think he's tried you know, that Bad News Bears remake, he has tried to do studio work and it's just not his, like, clearly at this point, it's not his thing. You know, I, I honestly, I think I really started to understand his films a little bit more after I saw a couple James Benning uh, films. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I, I had known that they had some kind of connection because of Texas and and whatever. And then I, uh, uh, I saw El Cohen at TIFF. Oh, that was a perfect TIFF movie, by the way, that I really loved. Um, I and so. um, uh, Landscape Suicide. And I, I and also just, you know, some of his other long take things where it's like 25 cigarettes or whatever, and it's 25 people just smoking a cigarette. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, I, you can kind of see Linklater's structures 
you know, what he's sort of getting from this. You can see the slacker aspect of that. You can see the the dazed and confused um, where he's just saying, okay, the structure is somewhat rigorous and that we're going to follow these people. But where it's not rigorous is that I'm not really going to be too heavy handed with what these people do. Yeah, it feels like the environment is more important in some cases than the the premise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, he he cops to it in Waking Life, where he has his own cameo as God, effectively, yeah, yeah. Uh, telling us that this is the world he's built, mm-hmm. and we're all living in it. But I think that is the thing that delights him the most: is observing, is is not pushing things towards a resolution or or even creating a dramatic arc. Other than the will they, won't they of the before films, where each film becomes a test of this couple's ability to see each other. Um, and I asked him about that once, and he just said, that's not what I'm doing. It's like, yes, it is, though. Like, <laughs> you're watching. You want to know. We want to know. And you want to know. Yeah, that that is there, that that will they, won't they aspect. I mean, that's the, you know, that's the thin hook of the films right so yeah 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 and he's he's saying i just want to watch them i want to st- i want to i want to experience this couple uh and see what they are and it's like yeah that's the whole point are they still a couple will they be a couple by the end of the film that's the question well he always kind of can give you just enough to 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 hang on to to give the movie some sort of structure you know like with with dazed it was it was the night it was the party and the, the signature with um the before ones it's basically the the yeah the, the will they won't they um yeah he gives you i think just enough to then step back and and observe so the film is still going somewhere but you you're just watching the river flow yeah and i've been trying to figure out how to tie this to retrograde because it is a film about someone under a microscope really i mean we're we're encouraged to watch very very closely as someone comes apart, which yeah. is the kind of psychological intensity that he rarely, Linklater doesn't seem interested in, in that kind of acuity. But in a weird way, it is just like it's a situational observational project in the same way where we are placed in a box with someone who could do the right thing and fix things, but won't for whatever reason and just keeps making it worse. And it's such a tiny thing that starts this snowball of neurosis. Mm-hmm. It's like it's an uncomfortable watch in the best possible way because I feel like the empathy of it is what worked for me. Where you're just like, why is this happening? Why are you doing this to yourself? And then you realize that's the point of it. The question is why. Mm-hmm. But is there anything? I again, I'm not sure this works. But the end the question of the podcast is all the same. Is there anything from Dazed and Confused that you have borrowed or lifted or outright stolen for your own work and specifically for retrograde? Um, with Dazed wasn't really a touchstone for me, but Linklater in general has been. Um, surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, but the his film, uh, It's Impossible to Learn to Plow by Reading Books, mm-hmm. that one was a huge touchstone for me for my first film. Um, and, you know, it's, it's been talked about before where, you know, like with Kevin Smith, where you, you have those films that you just kind of get excited because you think I could do that. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean you can, but it just means that there's sort of, it gives you a framework where you think, oh, technically I can do that. Technically I can, I can make a feature. Um, so, you know, in a, in a very formal sense, the way Linklater does his structures, I, I have kind of 
lifted. Like I do just want to observe people, but I want to have, I want to show that the film is heading somewhere so that you don't feel like it is uh, aimless by the end of it. And I love how thematically rich his films are. So I've, you know, it's hard to steal that, but it's something that I've noticed and uh, he's not the only one, but you know. Uh, yeah, I, I think from him, it's mostly the structures, rigorous structures and inarticulate characters that, you know, that would be sort of what I try and take from his work. Um, if there is something. Yeah, I can see it. I mean, the, the, there's a sense in retrograde that the film itself is going to crack open if, if nothing happens, if she doesn't act, if something doesn't change, which I, is, is distressingly relatable to me as a viewer. I think we've all been in these situations, but you found a way to start from a position of kind of almost absurdity and then just build it into something so much darker and more real that uh, I'm sort of in awe of it. I'm, I'm glad. Yeah, I, I, I guess this this can tie back to Linklater because what I wanted to do with it was make something inconsequential become incredibly consequential. And, you know, Molly's struggle does, like she does, you can expand it and it actually does signify very big things for her. And it could signify these big things, you know, these big questions you ask about, do I have control and how do I get control of my life? Um, you know, what is my place in this world? Um, and so like Linklater, you know, the, you have very small things becoming very significant to characters, mm -hmm. uh, whether they know it or not. My thanks to Adrian Murray, whose film Retrograde opens in theaters across Canada this Friday, May 19th. Thanks also to Alia Stationwala. She knows what she did. Adrian's not on Twitter. Can't really blame him at this point. But you can find Dazed and Confused on 4K, Blu-ray, and DVD in the Criterion Collection. It's also streaming on Craving Canada and Amazon in the U.S. and available to rent or buy on various VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash Semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out, get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week.